6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of James, chapter 5. We are studying Jacob's letter to the 12 tribes. It was written to the descendants of Israel. Jacob is Jacobus in the Greek, Jacques in France and French, Iago in Italian, Diego in Spanish, Yaakov in Hebrew, and of course we know it as the book of James. And uh, it is self-declaring as being written to the 12 tribes of Israel. The early church was, of course, a very Jewish church. And there are a number of Jameses in the Bible, but we believe for lots of reasons that I won't recap in this review that this is the Lord's brother. Or technically, you'd say his half-brother. His brothers were not believers before the resurrection, according to the scripture, but were afterwards, and James rises to the leadership in the Jerusalem church. And we talked a lot about that in our earliest session. We, of course, are in the seventh session of eight total on the book of James. And so I won't spend more time on reviewing all that, but I will mention this, is that if we, uh, we should essentially finish the book tonight in terms of we're in the fifth chapter, and I think we can get through 20 verses. But um, we do have a special session next time to deal with some peripheral issues about James. It may surprise you to learn that James is the subject of some very specific heresies that are, I believe are reemergent on the horizon. And anyone that doesn't know their Bible very well runs into the risk of being substantially derailed from their faith. And we're going to deal with that next time. The Shroud of Turin, the Knights Templar, Freemasonry. And what has all that got to do with James? We'll talk about that next time. Uh, We'll just jump in tonight to redeem the time. We're in James chapter 5. And one of the things that's going to take up right up front is this whole business of the rich. Many Christians are confused about money and about wealth. Being rich is not a sin, but it does have some very severe hazards. And one of the biggest hazards of being rich, strangely, ironically, is selfishness. You know, you would think, gee, if a guy has abundance, he's not going to be, he's going to be less selfish, except life generally, there are exceptions, of course. But in general, life is not like that. And that's one of the things that uh, James is going to deal with. James chapter 5, verse 1. James chapter 5, verse 1, Go now, go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Now you're going to discover as this all unfolds that these particular rich men had some problems. It's not because just they were rich, it's how they got there and what they were doing with it that will unfold in the subsequent verses. But let's sort of hit some of this right up front. You, the Bible does not discourage the acquiring of wealth. The first, one of the first big men of faith was Abraham. And he was one of the wealthiest men on the earth at that time, by many scholars reckoning. 
He was a very, very wealthy man. There's much evidence of that. But in Genesis 14, when the occasion comes, there were, well, there were nine kings that were warring against each other and uh, getting clobbered. Kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were clobbered by Shadalamar and the whole bunch up there. And when they came down to expoil, they happened to take Lot with them uh, as part of the captives. He was <laughs> Abram's nephew. So you talk about the Entebbe raid of Israel or whatever. Hey, Abraham goes after these guys up to Laish, the northern part of the country. In fact, they found a mud gate there, it was, which is because of very peculiar circumstances was preserved. Those things are not that durable. But that probably uh, uh, is dated from about that time. But anyway, the point is, Abraham wins, retrieves them, retrieves uh, a lot. And, uh, but it mentions in the passage there, it mentions, Genesis 14, that he raised up a trained army of 318 from among the servants that were born under his tents. I mean, this guy, you know, you talk about servants. I don't know how many you have. I don't have any. <laughs> I don't, can't think of anyone that has 318. You know, I mean, that's, but that gives you at least a glimpse of, of what was going on there. Now, also, Job was a wealthy man. Now, he, God used the occasion to, to put him to some tests, but the point is David, uh, Josiah, Philemon, that Paul writes the letter to, Bonesimus, and Joseph of Arimathea, one of the wealthiest guys in the region. He had direct access to Pilate. You don't just do that, you know. And uh, Lydia mentioned in the epistle. These were wealthy people. The Jews in Canaan owned their own property, worked it, benefited uh, from its produce. The, the acquisition of private property is ordained in the scripture. In many of Jesus' parables, he indicated his respect for personal property and private gain. That's the underlying dynamic in many, uh, uh, many of his uh, parables. There's nothing in the epistles that uh, contradicts the right of ownership and profit. One of the things that you need to understand, and I'm not going to take the burden to try to get tutorial on this, but you need to understand the rights to private property and personal freedom are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. And our founding fathers in this country understood that. We'll move on. What the Bible does condemn is acquiring wealth by illegal means or for inappropriate uses. And that's really what we're going to be getting into. You'll discover the writings of Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah thundered their, me their messages against stolen wealth and the abuse of the poor by the, by the rich and selfish luxury. Those are the themes. Because of those themes, many Christians sort of get the idea, well, gee, wealth is bad. No, the misuse of wealth is bad. Money is neutral, and it can be put to, either, to all kinds of appropriate or inappropriate purposes. Wealth is a spiritual handicap because uh, material possessions tend to focus one's thoughts on the world. Uh, the problem is not in the currency, it's in the heart. Money isn't the root of all evil, it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. You'll talk about that. But anyway, we worked our way down to verse 2. James continues, Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Verse 3, your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Wow. He's going to deal with the way they use their wealth. You say, wait a minute, gee, uh, gold doesn't rust or corrupt. What was rusting? Their heart. 
They were. And that's, in effect, uh, the part of the pun that's involved in here. Now, don't get confused. There's nothing sinful about saving. 2 Corinthians 12, 14, 1 Timothy 5, 8. In fact, just instead of just throwing these out, turn to 1 Timothy 5, 8. This is one that I think needs to be emphasized in today's churches, especially because of uh, some things that are on the horizon. And I think it's useful to go through the discipline of looking it up and marking it in your Bible if you haven't marked it. 1 Timothy 5, 8. Paul says to his protege, Timothy, If any provide not for his own, but especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Whoa. That's rough language for a guy like Paul. Pharisaical background. If any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, there is a call to provision. There's a call to, to do some estate planning. That's what it's all about. But anyway, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 14 and Matthew 25, 27 also point out nothing sinful about saving. You're admonished to do so. However, it is wrong to store up wealth if you owe money to others. These guys were selfishly guarding it for their own security and pleasure. Gee, they were hoarding wealth. Hoarding applies if your acquisition of it is denying its benefit to somebody else. There's a lot of rumbles now. People are storing up food because of Y2K. Is their purchase of food in the present markets denying anybody the food in the present market? Hardly. Hoarding is a term that's more properly used if somehow your acquisition of it is denying somebody else. Today, that's not true. Now the day may come when that may be quite different. But the point is setting up a store in anticipation of a need isn't hoarding. In any case, um, 1 Corinthians 4.2 says it is required of a steward to be faithful. And that's what we're called to. Now the problem with these guys that James is going to focus on is the way they got their wealth. Not only the way they used their wealth, but also the way they got their wealth. Verse 4. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud... Crieth, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts. You may recall in Matthew 20, Jesus talked about a parable about a guy who was hiring for his, his fields. And you sort of get the, the system that they used from that parable. You can read uh, again and again, uh, God is really emphasizes. Turn to Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, verse 14. Thou shalt not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren or of thy sojourners who are in thy land within thy gates. At his day thou shalt give him his hire, neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor, and setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto the Lord, and it be sin unto thee. You say, gee, that's quite quaint stuff. I don't hire anybody. Yes, you do. Do you have bills to pay? Are there people that are expecting to be paid on time? Are the terms of your relationship 30 days from invoice or whatever they are, or payable on demand, whatever they are? It's discouraging to hear repeatedly stories of practitioners, doctors, lawyers, others, who have, they'll be quick to point out to you that their uncollected receivables are mostly Christians. There's a tragic, tragic disease among us 
where Christians somehow feel disconnected from the consequences of their actions. We preach so hard about grace. We preach so hard that Christ died for our sins, and indeed he did. But somehow, the words of honor and integrity don't get talked about enough, I don't believe, from the pulpits. We, uh, we aren't diligent in our obligations. And if we are delinquent in paying our debts, we're putting ourselves dangerously close to these people that James is talking about here. My turn to Leviticus 19. As long as I'm beating you up a little bit, let's just... Uh, Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19.13, Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. Now, I'm not sure that applies in our particular culture. It did theirs, that you paid when it was due and it was done at the end of the day. In our case, mostly it's on the, you know, by the 15th of the month or whatever the arrangements are. But we need to be diligent about that. Why? Because it's our witness. Not doing it because we're under the law but because it's our witness. Proverbs 3, verses 27 to 8, Jeremiah 22, 13, we could obviously... Now, by the way, in the, in the verse 4, where it speaks of keeping back their wages, in the Greek, the tense implies that the laborers will never get their salaries. Not just delayed, but the, the, the Greek tense, the grammar implies, the overtone is that they'll never get it. Now, private property and the respect of private property is ordained in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. That, all, that not only prohibits socialism, which is a form of theft, it also means that we, you and I, need to be diligent in paying our bills, because that's a form of stealing. Even a stall is denying the rightful use of that money to the one who has earned it and has contracted for it. Verse 5, James continues, Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Psalm 50 verse 10 says that all wealth belongs to the Lord. There's some of us that have been entrusted with more wealth than others. But in any case, it's a stewardship of the Lord. And uh, he permits us to be stewards of that, ultimately for his glory. And our diligence in handling it properly is part of our witness. So one of the questions you need to think about, as you know, if you're an investor, you can invest for the short term or the long term. And one of the questions you might think about is, are you investing for the real long term? Our days are a handbreadth, as you recall from last time and so forth. It's interesting, too, anyone that's done any real analysis knows that luxury quickly reaches a point of diminishing returns. There's a point at which there's certain, if you prosper, you win the lottery or something, there's a few things you'd like to add, but very quickly you'll discover that it's um, very quickly nonlinear. Twice as much is not twice as good. You know, I sometimes joke my motto in life used to be that if a little bit's good, a whole lot's a lot better. Well, <laughs> turns out that's not really true. The Quaker typically says, um, tell me what thou dost need, and I will tell thee how to get along without it. <laughs> and that's a wonderful attitude to have, especially in these days, because I think we are uh, graced with a, a year or two here of preparation in anticipation of what might be some very, very difficult times. Most of us have grown up in an optimistic culture. Most of us have grown up with the idea that our kids are going to have it better than we did. That's been the traditional American dream, the 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever. I think it's becoming very, very clear that that's deteriorating. It's very, very clear that the horizon in the next few years is going to be incredibly turbulent. And not just because of the millennium changeover, that's part of it, 
There's also some other issues on the horizon. In fact, a large number of them, any one of which can cause some major perturbations. It's a great time to streamline, lower one's cost of living, get out of debt, resolve an ability to be mobile financially as well as geographically. But in any case, uh, Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 15, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Life does not consist of possessions. And we should be guarded. That's why being wealthy, strangely enough, um, raises the greed level, interestingly enough. You'd think it'd be inverse, but it's not. Luxury and self-indulgence. Luxury does t- is a symptom of self-indulgence, and that does lead, it has a way of corrupting character, of ruining character. Money itself is not sinful. Money is neutral, but, it, uh, but having too much of it can cause one to drift into uh, self-indulgence and ruin one's character. It's interesting, of the Ten Commandments, all but one are operative. That is, you can tell if somebody's done it. You can tell if someone's killed or stolen or other things. There's one of the commandments that is the only one that's in the heart. The last one, coveting. And uh, it's interesting. It, it's the only commandment that really deals with motivation rather than the act. Uh, it's a sin of a, a, All of them, obviously, are sins of the heart, but they're manifest. Covet is, is an internal thing, really. It's interesting. Abraham was a rich man, but he retained his character. When his nephew Lot became rich, uh, it ruined his character. He chose to be on the board of supervisors of Sodom. He sat at the gate. You have to understand the ancient culture to understand what that means. Uh, Psalm 62.10 says, If your riches increase, set not your heart upon them. That's the trick. You win the lottery or you get into a very favorable investment thing, be careful. God may bless you, but it also may be a test of where your heart remains focused. Proverbs 3.2.1, a good name rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. Now, riches are always accompanied by uncertainties. The only certainty we have in life is what? Huh? Not death. Some of us may not die. It is judgment. All of us have an appointment. All of us have an appointment. We don't like to talk about it. We like to duck it, pretend it's not there. It's there. We all have an appointment. Before the throne. If you're in Christ, you won't be judged for your sins, but you will be judged for a lot of other things in terms of rewards and whatever. There's two, there's two different judgments. I won't start on all that. You all know that. But uh, the point is, that's certain. Death isn't as certain. Maybe I'm splitting hairs, but if the rapture occurs, there's some of us that uh, won't die. I always love to stir up trouble by pointing out the people that died a thousand years ago, the people that died last month, and the people that get raptured a week from Tuesday all may arrive at the throne at the same instant. It's outside a different time dimension. So that may not be true, but at least it'll get you realizing that we're in a different dimensionality. Anyway, these guys are misusing their wealth. Now, this is a good time to get into Luke 16. It amazes me how many times I get into a theological discussion And it tracks back to this issue of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. Starting about verse 19, Jesus says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. So here's a rich guy. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus who was laid at his gate full of sores. Now, I want you to understand this is not a parable. Parables are little object lessons. Parables are little stories concocted to make a point. 
A parable is a rhetorical device, in effect, right? In parables, people don't have names. There really was a rich man. There really was this guy, Lazarus. This was, he is chronicling a real story here, not a, not a little uh, object lesson. This isn't a device. This is a, it's not a parable. It's an actual lesson. It was a guy named Lazarus. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. More of the dogs came and licked his horse. And by the way, I suspect that rich man probably took a tax ride off for those crumbs. But let's move on. <laughs> came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abram's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now this gets into some geometry we've got to talk about. In the Old Testament, there's a term called Sheol, meaning the grave or the abode. Of, it's, it's not just the grave in its physical sense. It's the abode of the dead. And you can, if you do a word study, you'll quickly find that out. That's the, Sheol being the Hebrew of the Old Testament. The Greek term for the New Testament for essentially the same thing is Hades. Hades is not hell. It's sometimes translated hell. That's clumsiness. Hades is the Greek term for the abode of the dead. And from Luke 16, we get the impression that it has two compartments that are separated. The good guys and the bad guys. Over here we got Abram in Abram's bosom, and that's where the beggar ends up with Abraham. The rich man, for whatever reasons, is in the other place. Now we learn a lot about this. He's conscious. Not annihilated, he's conscious. He's in torment. He somehow knows or can see across this gulf between the two. Some people make the little charts about this, like to have that gulf between the two be the abuso. It may or may not be. There's also a place, separate from what we've talked about, called the abuso, the abyss, the bottomless pit, as it's sometimes translated. We know where the bottomless pit is. Did you know that? There's only one place it can be. And to, to, to dramatize this, you have to remember the little children's riddle. You know, some campers set up camp, and they go 10 miles to the south, and they see bear tracks. And they follow this bear tracks 10 miles to the west, where they find the bear, shoot him, and they drag him 10 miles north back to the camp. The question is, what color is the bear? It has to be white, right? Because the only place you can go south, 10 miles west, and then north and back where you started is at the pole. Follow me? That's the idea. I'm giving you the short version. Okay. <laughs> where is the only place that you can have a bottomless pit? Where? Center of the earth, exactly. Because from the center of the earth, every direction's up. There's no, there's, there's no bottom. If you're at that point, every direction's up, isn't it? Right? It's very interesting that Hades and the Abuso are always spoken of in the scripture as being geocentric. Now that may be just a figure of speech, and many theologians would say it's just a, you know, is a figure of speech, and maybe it is. I don't think it is. I think it's real. The Gehenna, the lake with fire, is in the outer darkness. They're opposites geometrically. And of course, to fill in the blanks here so you don't get confused, we believe that when Jesus on the cross, when he was resurrected, he was the first fruits of a resurrection. In Matthew 27, we have a strange allusion to many other graves open and men walked and so forth. And that was, the, he was the first of a sheaf. It had to be a sheaf to fulfill the prophecy of, of the first fruits. But the point is, at that point, most of us infer that the good side of Hades is cleaned out. They're with him now. The others are waiting their final judgment. Okay? We're together? That save you. That's where this is. The, and most of this come, comes from here and some other passages. Verse 24. The uh, rich man sees uh, Lazarus in Abraham's wisdom. In verse 24 he says, He cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he might dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I, have, I am tormented 
in this flame. Now, I think this probably is anthropomorphic because he's no longer physical. He's in a different dimensionality, but still, that's the analogy. He's in pain. And verse 25, But Abram said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they who would pass from, uh, from here to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from there. In other words, you can't cross this gulf. It doesn't work. Maybe a total different dimensionality. I don't know exactly what's going on. But anyway, verse 27. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abram said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. You can almost hear a Jewish accent there, can't you? Right? <laughs> and he said, Nay, Father Abraham. But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one even rose from the dead. Now you get the irony here. Because there was a different Lazarus, but Lazarus was raised from the dead. And what did they do about it? They plotted to kill him. That was a big problem, have Lazarus walking around after, after that whole thing, you know, for Bethany and so on. And uh, they had a kid knock him off too. Very interesting. Uh, I really wonder if the rich man knew the name of Lazarus before this event. I wonder when he was at the door begging if the rich man even countenanced him. I wonder if Jesus mentions his name here to Abraham. It's ironic. He mentions Lazarus' name. He doesn't ever mention the rich man's name. Verse 6, continuing. James says, Ye have condemned and killed the just... And he, doth not re- and he does not resist you. You know the old expression, the golden rule, he that has the gold rules. And one of the frightening things that we see in cultures for thousands of years, and we see it happening in America. America was founded to avoid these traditional injustices. You've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.